Our scripture today comes from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. For the original disciples of Jesus, and for all of those who knew him and saw him teach and saw him do all sorts of ministry, the humanity of Jesus was never in question. There were even people who knew Jesus and saw what he was doing who said, is not this the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? For the disciples and the eyewitnesses to Jesus in his incarnation, which we talked about last week, the humanity of Jesus was never questioned. What was initially questioned and then slowly revealed in his life and his ministry and his teaching and then in his death and his resurrection was the fact that he was God. But it wasn't long after his life and his death and his resurrection and then his ascension to the right hand of the Father that this flipped and the questions began to come from the opposite direction. His closest disciples who knew his humanity full well, who spent lots of time with him, they worshipped him as God. But the first generation of Christians to come after them, they started from a different place. And you have to think about it like this. They began by seeing him as God. And they tended to struggle not with his divinity, but they tended to struggle with his full humanity. And the way that we know this is that one of the first heresies that the church had to deal with, one of the first uh, measures of false teaching that came against the gospel message of Jesus that they had to deal with as the early church was the teaching that he was not fully human. Um, But John, who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, John directly addressed this in a few of his letters, and and here's how he opened one of them. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's the first verse of John's letter to the beloved church. John says, we have heard Jesus, we heard Jesus in his incarnation. We heard Jesus, we saw Jesus, we touched him with our hands. And you know, John was there at the cross when Jesus was crucified. He saw Jesus bleed and he saw Jesus die. John is saying Jesus is God, yes, but Jesus was fully human too. And again, he's writing this to refute the false teaching that Jesus was not fully human. Again, he continues on chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He is saying anyone who denies the humanity of Jesus is denying Jesus. Do you see what it says in the text? Any spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
It's very important. He even wrote a follow-up to this in what we call 2 John. In verse 7 it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So what John is saying to the beloved church is that understanding the full humanity of Jesus is a total necessity and that denying the full humanity of Jesus is a denial of Jesus wholesale. Just like a denial of the divinity of Jesus is a denial of Jesus wholesale. And basically for 2,000 years now, we have different groups of people kind of flipping back and forth over the course of history, saying that he was God but not really human, or that he was human but not really God. And some people stumble in this, where they have an idea of who God is that they cannot fit the Jesus of the Gospels into. And at the same time, some people have an idea of who Jesus is, and they cannot fit the God of the Bible into that vision. In my conversations as a Christian for what has now been 19 years since I came to Christ, what I have found is that you've got misguided teaching about Jesus on both sides. You've got people who think that Jesus was a great man, but they can't accept that he was God. And you've got people who think that Jesus was God, but they cannot accept or they have a very hard time accepting that he was fully human in every way, just like us, except for the sin. And what I find so interesting is that some Christians really struggle with the idea of Jesus' full humanity. So whether you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're really intrigued by this man, or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a very long time, but you have struggled with the full humanity of Christ, wherever you're at, I really think that as we study the life of Jesus, it reveals something of God's heart to us. And it shows us how we can then live in light of that truth of who he is. So I want to drill down into the life of Jesus And why that matters for us 2,000 years later, just three quick points to guide our conversation today. The growing life of Jesus, the emotional life of Jesus, and the obedient life of Jesus. We're going to look at the life of Jesus by talking about the growing life of Jesus, and I'll explain what I mean by that. The emotional life of Jesus and the obedient life of Jesus. Let's look at our text, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, the growing life of Jesus. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, I'm well aware that Hebrews chapter 5 is dealing with uh, this and more, and the context surrounding these few verses that I've pulled from Hebrews chapter 5 is dealing with the high priesthood of Jesus, which is the topic that we're going to look at later on in this series. But for the purposes that we're looking at today, I just wanted to draw this out, that it does speak to the life of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, and I think it really tells us something. uh, I think it's important for us to understand. It says, in the days of his flesh, Verse 7 begins, in the days of his flesh. That literally means in his earthly life. In his earthly life, Jesus cried out to God, cried out to our Heavenly Father. He cried out with the depth of emotion and anguish. He cried out with tears, which we will look at in the emotional life of Jesus' point. But just notice something in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned. 
He grew. He didn't just arrive on the scene as a 30-year-old Bible teacher, you know, 30-year-old religious leader who, who then died and rose again, though that is true. It's just that the Bible teaches us about the life of Jesus. It talks about his conception. It talks about his birth. It talks about his childhood. It talks about his adolescence. It talks about his life. It talks about his teaching and his miracles, as well as his death and resurrection. But we should not have the conception in our minds that Jesus just arrived on the scene as a 30-year-old religious teacher and then he died and rose again for our salvation. Lots happened before his teaching that really brings value, intrinsic value, to what it means to be human. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. See, Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. Literally, he kept growing in wisdom is what it says, even as he got older and bigger. He was a child who grew in wisdom and stature. He learned. It's a guy named Irenaeus who was mentored by a guy who was mentored by John the Apostle, John that I was quoting earlier on, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But a hundred years after John wrote those letters that I was quoting from, Irenaeus also wrote a lot refuting the claim that Jesus was not really human. He said when Jesus was 30 and he was acknowledged as a teacher uh, among all the religious leaders in his day, uh, he said he was not despising or evading any condition of humanity, nor setting aside in himself that law which he had appointed for the human race, but sanctifying every age by that period corresponding to it which belonged to himself. For he came to save all through means of himself, all, I say, who through him are born again to God, infants and children and boys and youths and old men. He therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants, a child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of this age, being at the same time made to them an example of piety or godliness, righteousness and submission, a youth for youths, becoming an example to youths, and thus sanctifying them for the Lord. Okay, what he's saying is that Jesus grew through every age and stage. Jesus grew through every age and stage. It's really good news for every kid listening to this, sitting with their parents. It's really good news for any kid listening to this, sitting with their uncle or aunt or their grandparents. It's good news for every kid who has growing pains in their body and they've got snotty noses and they've got cuts and bruises because their physical growth has outpaced their coordination and they're still clumsy. It's good news for you kids because Jesus went through that. It's good news for every preteen trying to figure out how to get through elementary school and move on to the promised land of high school and figure out your place in the world. This is good news for every teenager dealing with hormones and questions about who you're supposed to become as you get closer to adulthood. This is good news to every young adult who is currently being educated or currently building their career and, and has experienced maybe changes in their circle of friends over the last while. This is good news for every person who is growing toward maturity where people then begin to acknowledge that you actually have something to say 
You have contributions to make to the conversations going on all around us, whether societal or philosophical or, or vocational. You have something to offer. This is good news because Jesus was an infant who was cared for. This is good news because Jesus was a child who was growing and learning. This is good news for a youth who went through, because Jesus went through puberty, and he went through uh, the stage of living as a young adult, and he started to work in his family business, in his trade. This is good news all around for us. It's good news for you because whatever you're going through, Jesus doesn't just know it as a concept. He knows it experientially. Jesus went through every stage and every age in life. B.B. Warfield said, nothing is lacking to make the impression strong that we have before us in Jesus, a human being like ourselves. And Jesus experienced all the normal life events that we experience. And I've got scriptural citations for all of these, but I want to go through a list. I want you to see that Jesus was born of a woman, that he had a normal body of flesh and bones, that he grew up as a boy, that he had a family, that he obeyed his parents, that he learned the scriptures, that he worshipped God, that he prayed to God, that he worked as a carpenter. He had a job. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got stressed. He asked questions. He was astonished. He was happy. He was was justifiably angry. He was filled with compassion. He cared for the poor and the oppressed. He had male and female friends that he loved. He loved children. He celebrated holidays. He went to parties and he loved his mom. That's Jesus. And like Irenaeus said, Jesus passed through every age, but he also passed through every life experience, every stage from birth to life to adulthood to suffering and death. Which means that you and I can find meaning in anything and everything that we do because the Son of God went through it. From being a member of a family to being a a caring neighbor and, and friend. From the importance of the value of education to the importance of a hard day's work. Because of what Jesus has done in the biblical story, there's value in life and we're talking about that, but there's also meaning and value in in, in suffering. And eventually in death. Because we know that Jesus has gone through that and he has risen anew, making a way for us into eternal life with him. In Jesus' life, he went through every age and every stage and he went through all of them in a way that should encourage us and strengthen us. It should fill us with courage to comprehend the reality that Jesus too experienced what it means to be human. Richard Bauckham said, the belief that Jesus was God become human does not make Jesus any less the human. The whole point of the doctrine, he's speaking about the incarnation, the whole point of the doctrine is that the Son truly became a real human being. To grasp what it meant, one should first of all think of Jesus as a fully human person, human in thoughts, his emotions, his physicality, his relationships. Jesus is as fully human as the rest of us, except that he did no wrong. That is a very brief flyover of what I mean when I talk about the growing life of Jesus. But let's look at just a focused subset of what he learned in his incarnation this way by talking about the emotional life of Jesus. The emotional life of Jesus. Again, look at verse 7 of our text. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. It says in the days of his flesh, in his earthly life, it says Jesus felt. He felt emotion. I think some people think that Jesus was some kind of unfeeling robot who never had a bad day. I just don't know where you would get that idea from, but it's not the Bible. David Mathis said, Jesus took a human body to save our bodies. He took a human mind to save our minds. Without becoming human in his emotions, he could not have rescued our hearts. And without taking a human will, he could not save our broken and wandering wills. In the words of Gregory of Nazianzus, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. That which he has not assumed, taken on, he has not healed. Jesus did not enter into human history and look like a human and talk like a human and walk like a human, void of the actual experience of what it feels like to be human. He was full of emotion. He offered up prayers and supplications, it says, with loud cries and tears. There's no stoicism with Jesus. Jesus is not your stiff upper lip guy who gives you the side-eye glance at the first expression of emotion happening in the room. Jesus is not the guy who gets awkward when you get emotional. Jesus is not the dad who was raised in an environment where real men don't cry. That is not Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I just want you to see, he's like us in every respect, yet without sin. John Calvin wrote, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. He has put on our feelings along with our flesh. He felt everything that it meant to be human. If you want to read the best thing I think that's ever been written on the emotional life of Jesus, you can go online and search B.B. Warfield. He has an essay called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's fantastic. He just talks about what Jesus felt. See, for us as we follow Jesus, if we want to learn what it means to be properly emotional human beings, we have a perfect example to learn from. Mark Jones said, after all, one of the problems in the church today is not that we are too emotionally driven, but that we are not sufficiently such after the pattern of Christ. He's saying the issue isn't that we're too emotional. Sometimes we believe our emotions a little more than we should. It's called emotionalism. We need to have the goosebumps on our goosebumps to feel like God is with us. That's emotionalism. But the fact is, if we felt compassion the same way Jesus feels compassion, our city would look different. The problem is not that we feel too little. It's that we do not, uh, the problem is not that we feel too much. It's that we feel too little. In Warfield's essay on the emotional life of Jesus, he says compassion is the emotion that's most frequently attributed to Jesus. And I think we need to pay attention to that and allow our hearts to be broken by what breaks the heart of God. But we also need to remember that Jesus felt the full spectrum of emotions that we feel, and he did so without sin. 
right? There's a, a proper way to be justifiably angry. In fact, in order to feel some of the compassion that Jesus famously felt, I think it would be impossible to feel that level of compassion for the lost and the broken and the hurting and the oppressed. It would be impossible to have that level of compassion without justifiable anger as well. It's an incorrect way to be angry that leads to sin. That is not the emotional life of Jesus. That's our fallen emotional state. That we exist in this world where there's justifiable anger, but then there's also sinful anger. It's kind of like you've taken fresh water and salt water and mixed it all together, and it's just, it's coming out of us mixed. But I just want you to see that in the Bible, the compassion and anger of Jesus are never mixed. They're pure and perfect and holy and righteous and sinless. There is a proper way to be justifiably angry. There's a proper way to be justifiably anxious and sorrowful and hurt and lonely and forgotten and troubled. And the good news is you're not alone as you experience any of those pains. Those things that pain you right now, those feelings that you have, they pained our Lord in his incarnation and they pain him now for you. He felt all that we feel and more. Verse 7 of our text in Hebrews 5 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. When it says that, I think it's aiming at a specific experience. I think it's namely when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. We have an account of that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26 and verse 36, where it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, I want you to see that Jesus was overcome. He was burdened. There was some measure of anxiety, sorrowful. It's because of the weight of the task in front of him. Christ City, he felt it. Being emotional is not a product of our fallenness in sin. Being emotional is part of what it means to be fully human. I want you to see what he did with his emotions when he felt them. See, the growing life of Jesus leads us into the emotional life of Jesus, which shows us what godly maturity looks like in the obedient life of Jesus. Let's look at the obedient life of Jesus. He acknowledges what he feels and what he does with his emotion as he brings it before the Father in prayer. With loud cries and tears. And then he reaffirms his submission to the will of the Father. See, maturity in our walk with God and maturity in our emotional life are things we grow into, just like Jesus. And maturity in our emotional life leads us always toward an abandonment to the will of God. We abandon our will for the preferable will of God. And that doesn't always make sense. But we need to obey him, not how we feel. We bring our feelings to him in submission and surrender 
that he might save us, heal us, sanctify us, comfort us, and straighten us out. Maturity in our emotional life does not mean we stop feeling all the feelings. It means we know where to go and what to do in the midst of those emotions. See, maturity in our emotional life means we follow Jesus and what he did, and we relinquish control just time and time again. We just yield our will to the will of our Father who knows and understands what is best for us. There are times where in my life I have a desire that does not seem to be in line with God's desire for me. If I follow my emotions apart from a surrender to the will of God, it leads to destruction. But if I bring my emotions before him and say, this is how I feel, but your will be done, not mine. He aligns me with him and then eventually I get to experience the full joy of that obedience. See, Christ said obedience in and of itself is its own reward. You get to walk in a closeness and fellowship with God that is not there apart from that level of obedience. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Do you see this? That reverence is a complete abandonment to the Father's will. John chapter 8 is one of my favorite places to look at this, talking about the obedience of Jesus in surrender and submission to the Father, when in verse 28 it says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This is what obedience looks like. Jesus was obedient, not just in his life, but to the very end in his death. George Guthrie said the Father attended to the Son's cries because of Jesus' posture of complete abandonment to the Father's will. So so here's what I'm trying to get at. Jesus is fully human. Jesus grew. Jesus grew through the things he learned and the things he felt. And Jesus learned through the things he suffered. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, in Jesus' perfect obedience, he is qualified then to be our source of eternal life. He is qualified to be the eternal source of uh, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And just as Jesus' perfect obedience makes a way for our salvation, we need to be aware. We're granted this opportunity to repent of our sin, to receive forgiveness for our sins. Just as his perfect obedience makes a way for us to be saved, his perfect obedience is the example for us as we live a life abandoned to the will of God. When the pressure ratcheted up in the life of Jesus, Jesus' obedience did not waver. As Jesus bent his will to the will of his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane upon the cross, we too are called to bend our will to the will of God. And the good news for us today is that Jesus is the source of eternal life to all who obey him. 
See, without these insights into the life of Jesus, I think it would be really difficult to approach him in the depth of our need and pain. Knowing that he has gone through this makes him an accessible and compassionate friend to sinners. The humanity of Jesus is this beautiful window into what it looks like to be fully human. Let us seek to live a life that glorifies our Father in heaven as we seek to obey him as Jesus did. But let us not, let us not be overcome when our obedience makes us feel, our disobedience makes us feel like we're far from him. You're not saved because of your perfect record of obedience. But Jesus, being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We have the opportunity to trust in his perfection in our place. As you get ready to celebrate communion with your house church, whether you're online or gathered together in a park, gathered together in a backyard, the picture of the bread and the wine point us to the reality that Jesus Christ in his obedience went to the end for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. And so we come to him and we put our faith in him. We put our trust and hope in him, knowing that we are completely unable to save ourselves. But through his perfect work in our place, we are able to come to him with no reservation and that he accepts all who come to him. So if you're a follower of Jesus, prepare the bread and the cup. We do this in the hope of and the expectation of his soon return. We do this, though, every time we celebrate it, proclaiming the gospel until he comes. So here we are standing in faith, walking in obedience before God. Let's celebrate communion. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the beauty of Jesus and the hope that we have in the gospel, that though we are fallen and broken and far from you, you have brought us near in Christ, the perfectly obedient one, who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die, also that we could be reconciled to you eternally. Oh, Father, we ask you that you would open our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you that you would come and minister to us in this moment. Draw us closer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.